Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Matt Johnson, and joining me today is Forrest Neighbors, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Alaska, Anchorage. He's here today to discuss his new book, From Oligarchy to Republicanism, The Great Task of Reconstruction. Forrest, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Matt. Well, I'd like to start today um, by talking about your route to academia. I mean, you had, as my partner likes to call it, a real job uh, for a while, didn't you? (laughs) I did. That's right. Uh, although I always knew I wanted to do something having to do with books eventually, because ever since I was a kid, aside from uh, football and baseball and chasing girls, I loved libraries and I loved losing myself in libraries. And I really fell in love even more deeply with books when I was in college. I still played football, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, when I graduated from college, I, I really wasn't ready for graduate school. So I did get a real job and kind of worked my way around in the economy and eventually found a perfect home for a liberal arts major, which was in high tech. <laughs> um, you know, when, when <laughs> there's so many books on um, the antebellum period and, and the mm-hmm. Civil War period, um, you know, they fill libraries, right? Yeah, I mean, I know. Uh, you know, when you dove into this scholarship, what did you see in that literature that made you think that another book deserves to be on on that shelf? Because I thought that nobody had the big picture right. And mm. I know that that is a, that's a, a very large claim and a quite a serious criticism because I'm aware of all the spilled ink. Mm-hmm. Um in Civil War, Reconstruction, antebellum periods. Um, But, you know, I was trained in political philosophy. And, you know, in political philosophy, we get anybody out there who has studied political philosophy, you know that you get really drilled in regimes, political regimes. And so when I began to, uh, when I started researching, um, the period, and, and I had a, a research question in mind, the thing that I saw from the primary documents all over the place were these references to political regimes. Mm. And none of the, you know, I, I just couldn't see in any of the secondary literature really take seriously the idea that what the, that, that central to the problem of the 19th century was the highest kind of political problem, which is a regime problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I have to be honest, you know, it took me after years of doing this research to uh, really, I couldn't believe that I was right, that I was seeing something that nobody else had seen because of all the work that's been done in the period. But the more that I kept reading the primary doc- documents, the more I came to the conclusion, my gosh, our country doesn't even know what happened to it. Mm. And the scholars have missed it. Um, and so that's 
and then I decided, well, they're go- they're either going to think that I'm I'm crazy or brilliant or in <laughs> um, making the. But I I just I saw what I saw, and I felt I had to make the case because if I'm right, I think our sense of ourselves has to change. Uh-huh. And so what is, what is that regime, you know, seeing this as, as a regime, what do you, what, what do you mean by um, a regime? What does that regime actually look like? Well, who rules? You know, mm-hmm. Let's start there. Is mm-hmm. it one few or many? Um, and how do they rule? Do they rule for the common advantage or not? Um, this is basic regime analysis. And we begin with this when we're evaluating systems of government and, uh, you know, ever since ancient times. And we usually think of, well, let me, I can tell you what the, you know, what the standard view of our country is that will be familiar, you'll be familiar with, and I'm sure many of the listeners will be familiar with, which is that, you know, America is a democracy, to use the modern language. And, uh, you know, our democracy began as being somewhat exclusionary, but gradually became more inclusive. And so, uh, you know, some we might debate over whether or not we're a perfect democracy or a flawed democracy. But everybody, most people generally agree that we're, we've been a democracy. Mm-hmm. Well, my contention is that uh, that's not true. And that during the 19th century, there was a very serious multi-decade campaign by a set of rulers in the antebellum South to, uh, you know, to change our system of government in the United States and to make it uh, uh, oligarchical, which is how they ruled their respective states in the American South. And Mm-hmm. So what I say is that the American Civil War was an inter-regime war. It was a war between uh, two geographic sections, to be sure. But in each geographic se- section, a di- very different system of government and way of life prevailed. Mm-hmm. In the American South, uh, it was oligarchic government. And uh, the oligarchic way of life and the ol- oligarchic principle, which is the principle of natural inequality. And in the North... It was republicanism, natural rights republicanism, the republicanism of the American founders, which mm-hmm. did prevail. I mean, so, so do you do you point to a, a specific moment when you can say the South definitely suddenly becomes an oligarchy? Great question, Matt. Uh, and to be honest with you, uh, I don't have a clean answer for you, and I've searched for that answer as I got further into my research. Mm-hmm. There are some real pretty important moments before the Civil War that I can point to which show further development. And you can even see some members of the founding generation who uh, Southern founders uh, during you know who um, who indicate concern and worry that the new generation and uh, the you know and the new generations are departing from their ideas on what is go- good government, and they worry about it. In my the introduction of my book, I, I quote Jefferson and Marshall, for example. Mm-hmm. You know the the great Chief Justice John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson, who say things that indicate this. But there, you know, there are other founders who note this too. Um, 
But I would also say, you know, in the the Missouri Compromise is a, a major um, watershed, um, and and you know I am I, I have to say I'm not really satisfied with the secondary literature that treats it, nor on nullification. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Freeling began his career writing about nullification, and uh, but I I think they all miss really what is going on here, mm-hmm. and so. Um, you know, my next book will probably is going to go back to the founding and work forward from there. But um, I already have somewhat, you know, worked out my feet. But those are, are, you know, the the moments that history, historical scholarship senses already are are important. They are important uh, to me too. Um, uh, but uh, but I don't think they really isolate why those moments are are so important to the development of oligarchy, but certainly Mm -hmm. the Missouri compromise shows the North that the South is going off the rails. And certainly the nullification, um, the nullification controversy crisis is this is Calhoun's coming out party. Mm -hmm. This is when he uses nullification to basically broadcast to all of these young leaders in the South um, of his, this new way. Yeah. And he, it's a marketing moment. It's a launch party to put it in modern high tech lingo. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, that's what it, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, but, so those are important moments. By the time you get to the 1850s, you know, historians have been very good at documenting sort of the, you know, the, the contest over slavery leading up to the civil war and all that. But what they don't really point out is that, the conflict over slavery is is really uh, adjunct to the conflict over over a, a, even a bigger question, which is you know fundamental political things, how we govern ourselves, and whether the principle of natural equality or the principle of natural inequality is going to be the organizing principle of political society um, in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you you hinted at this a little bit, but. I wonder if you can step back and and, and um, explain to the listeners, you know, what exactly causes this oligarchy in the South? Yes, um, this is. Some, thank you for asking that because some people make uh, uh, draw the the wrong conclusion that uh, from you know hearing about my book that it has that I'm I'm really uh, uh, I don't believe that slavery was. Uh, the cause of the civil right. war and the aftermath of slavery is what they deal with in reconstruction. And, and I'm moving the focus away from that. That's not true at all. Um, uh, slavery is, is, you know, the, the foreground of, of the stage, but the all encompassing background that encompasses slavery is uh, this uh, Southern oligarchy. Um, slavery is a, is the potent institution that corrupts Republican government wherever it is planted and increases. So, um, if you don't wipe out slavery, what and you and you try to plant a Republican constitution, and slavery ends up uh, growing and spreading, what you end up with is oligarchic rule. Um, because the more slaves you got, the more slaves you have, the more it, it, I mean, the institutional effect is far, far reaching it. It actually transforms the, the, uh, the political regime. 
And this is why, and the founders knew this, and this is why the founders north of South Carolina, the Southern founders, especially north of South Carolina, who are Republicans, why they uh, speak and act against slavery. They know that if they don't wipe it out soon, that um, true Republicanism will die. Mm -hmm. And they had just fought a civil war. I'm sorry, a, a revolution. They had just fought a revolution to, uh, to uh, you know, to create republicanism in North America and to create a republican regime. And so, you know, their highest political ambitions were to establish a natural rights republic. And they knew that if slavery were to uh, continue, uh, that their highest political ambitions would be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And this is why they spoke and acted against slavery. And this is why also that from the very beginning that, you know, South Carolina and Georgia were not all that excited at wiping out slavery because they liked their way of life and system of government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was point, you know, John C. Calhoun plays such a big role in this book, and you mentioned yes. him briefly um, a few minutes ago. But I was wondering if you could explain a little bit why he's such a central character in this book. Wow. Um, what a, what a genius. Um, I, I tell people I, I, I admire, I, and I've even spoken admiringly of, about Calhoun. And one time in a, I was giving a speech and somebody said, well, how can you speak so admiring? And I said, well, you know, I, I admire him the way I admire Machiavelli or Satan, you know, <laughs> quite, they're very formidable, but not nice people. Um, you know, Calhoun is, um, he claims to strictly construe the constitution, but he falsely construes the constitution while at the same time praising the founders and, and praising fidelity to the constitution when in fact it, you know, so that helps to cloak his creative reinterpretation of it. Um, and what he, I mean, his, his, both his constitutional theory and his political philosophy is difficult to explain in, in just a few minutes. But, um, you know, I do make the case in, in the book that, uh, and the Republicans make the case for me, the Reconstruction Republicans, that he really was the philosopher of oligarchy. And he didn't really like the... <laughs> the republicanism of the American founders. And he tries to sort of reinvent the American Republic and make it into an oligarchic political regime. And he's, you know, his oligarchic constitutionalism uh, helps make that case it, or it helps to So for example, you know, his argument that slavery follows the flag in the territories Uh, He's saying that the Constitution explicitly recognizes um, slavery as a a property right and that um, in all of the territories, you know, those territories are the joint property of the sovereign states. And therefore, as joint property, you can't deny a state access to it uh, um, for, for slave ownership. Well, the consequences of that of that constitutional theory is that slavery can spread everywhere. Mm -hmm. And if slavery, 
if if the slave states account for three quarters of the states, what can you do? Well, you could amend the Constitution, make slavery national, just like the Confederacy did. And the consequences of making slavery national and spreading it and planting it everywhere is that it rises up a minority class of rulers who control the government. And what do you get? Oligarchy. You get the rule of a few whites over the majority who are white and black. And so, you know, that's the direct consequence, you know, the logical consequence of, you know, of the Dred Scott decision, which basically, uh, you know, manifests Calhoun's constitutional theory. So it's all in the service of their highest political goal, which is the establishment of oligarchy, remaking America, regime change in America from republicanism to oligarchy, and failing that, breaking away and forming an oligarchic empire, which, you know, can which which grows in a southerly direction. I mean, that was Calhoun's ambition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in this book, the oligarchy, uh, it seems so, so difficult to resist, right? I mean, for both Northerners and for poor whites in the South, why, why was it just so difficult to resist the rise of this oligarchy? That's a, a yeah, I, and I, I guess I, I'm sorry to answer a question with a question, but I would say <laughs> I'll turn it around on you and say, yeah. well, why was Stalin hard to resist? Why was Hitler hard to resist? Why was Saddam Hussein hard to resist? Yeah. Why is every tyranny everywhere hard to resist? Uh-huh. Um, and you know, to appropriately answer that question, I think we have to dig into the great historians and the great philosophers to be able, you know, to to inquire into that question. Uh, you know, I mean, that question leads to why do human political communities tend to be role, ruled oligarchically? Aristotle mm. says that um, all political revolution and all civil strife is ultimately driven by the conflict between the few and the many, that is, Democrats and oligarchs. Well, why is that? Well, that's a question for political philosophy to answer. And uh, at least for the purposes of this interview, that's above my pay grade. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, the answer lies therein. And, mm-hmm. and I can try to answer that and, and I can make an a, attempt at explaining that to you. But, um, you know, these guys, they were tough sons of guns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these. These people were. Uh, they were tough. They were bold. They knew what they wanted, and they were willing to throw the dice and risk all to get what they wanted. If you read what the what their opponents say about them, uh, you know they uh, those that that ruling class in the antebellum South are formidable, um, and they their boldness their uh, is respected. Um, read what I'm trying to remember. I think it was, uh, is it General Mahan, uh, the former commandant of the of the United States Military Academy at West Point? What he says about his former uh, charges at West Point? You know, the Southerners who had um, who had defected from the Union and with their seceded states and had gone on to join the Confederacy. He speaks directly about Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and the rest. 
has great respect for these people, even though he says in the New York Times that they're liars. Mm. They're lying. Um, and I mean, you, but you, you know, I'm singling out one, but it, a good measure of their strength of and their their um, and their daring is to read what their contemporaries say about them in the opposing side. Read the Republicans. Mm -hmm. um, it's impressive. Th th these are not a these are not a group of um, uh, of uh, of lazy people. They they're very ambitious. They. So, so for these, you know, really powerful people, what 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 brings them down? What, you know, what's what's the moment you can say that the southern southern oligarchy is is done, has ended? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, in the final analysis, I would say that what does them in is that they make the mistake that all of America's enemies in war have made. And which could be the mistake that our next enemy is making right now, which is that they underestimate uh, the sort of liberality, generosity, tolerance of of Republican citizenry for weakness. Mm. They make that mistake, and they underestimate us. And I think that uh, you know. Before the American Civil War, these guys, uh, well, all you have to do is read what they say about Yankees and Northerners and so on, and how one Southern man is going to lick 10 Yankees. And it's understandable why they and why American enemies would make that mistake, because out of a kind of um, disinterest and in in fighting and wanting to simply continue practicing the arts of peace, uh, free people, they, they appease or, you know, they try to work out a compromise. They, they prefer peace, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Chamberlain does this with Hitler. Um, Stephen Douglas is doing this with the Southerners before the Civil War. For decades, Ameri every time the Southern statesmen are making more demands upon the North, Northerners are sending politicians to Congress who will accede to Southern demands and, and appease them. And so it's natural that these Southern statesmen on the eve of the Civil War would underestimate Northerners and think that they're just good as soon as uh, as soon as they secede, that the Northerners are just going to let their erring sister states depart in peace, to paraphrase Greeley. Mm -hmm. You know, they they think that's going to happen, but um, they miss the signs that a free people doesn't take their own threats to their own liberty too kindly. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they when the Southerners directly confront, you know, the majesty of the popular will in the North and the. And and they threaten the survival of of Republican liberty in general, and and by this act of secession, then you see the northern people quickly turn and rise up, um, and you see, for example, you know this member of Congress um, say the giant North finally stands erect and. 
confronts them. Uh, and, you know, and this is unexpected. The, the Southerners, they don't really see this coming. Um, but, you know, uh, but they learn, you know, they learn the tough way. And unfortunately, it takes rivers of blood to, you know, to finally put a stop to them. Mm-hmm. You have this great line towards the end of the uh, end of the book that I just want to read really quickly and have you respond to it. So you write, Reconstruction meant wholesale regime change, as profound as if the United States had occupied a foreign nation ruled by a privileged class to the exclusion of all others, and then had attempted to establish free government there. The difficulty was oligarchic uh, political regime uh, had been consolidating and therefore was more durable and resistant to externally imposed change. And so I was wondering if you could give listeners an idea of, you know, what really did change? What did what did end about that oligarchy and what proved very durable through Reconstruction? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for quoting that. Um, well, uh, in oligarchic political regimes, the people who live within that regime are ranked. The, an oligarchy lives, uh, I mean, it organized itself on the principle of, of um, inequality. So some rule and some are ruled. And how much liberty a person has depends upon where you are in that ranked ordering of human beings. Well, in the American South, for decades, they had been uh, developing this regime in which, you know, a, a very few ruled and everybody was ranked. And those rankings also um, were uh, differentiated by color. And so, you know, the oligarchy, even though its ambitions are thwarted by the North, when the North then occupies the South and tries to establish republicanism there, they've got to deal with the fact that the human beings who had been living there were had all of their customs, their habits, their way of life had been formed for decades. And these rankings among people, it's hard to sort of break them up and level them so that everybody are in fact treated, according to the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. Um, it it's hard to do that. You have to undo uh, these deeply ingrained habits and views of the universe that are shaped by the olig- that were shaped by this oligarchic political regime. Regime change is tough, uh, and sometimes it's successful, and sometimes it's a failure. You know that we were we you know marginally successful uh, when it, it, during Reconstruction. But, uh, you know, I mean, the failure is evident to everybody. And we only remember Reconstruction in the sense that it failed. And it did fail abysmally for our fellow citizens, for black Americans. Um, and, it, and, and in fact, it also somewhat failed for the poor white class, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, during Reconstruction, those ranks were only partially flattened. And that this is, but, you know, the reason... Uh, um, because 
it takes a hundred years to get even real civil rights legislation enacted that will be followed in the American South. That testifies to the once great power of that oligarchy that had developed before the Civil War. Mm -hmm. It takes a hundred years just to get these laws obeyed that um, that are finally, you know, faithful to the Declaration of Independence down there. Uh, so that tells you something about how resistant that political society was. Um, and and the, to add to the, if you if I could just add, I mean, to make to complicate the difficulty even further, this was not a separate nation that we were trying to change. This was a section of our own country where we were trying to effect regime change. And the problem that that presented, which is unique and different, it, it would have been more advantageous if the South legally had, had actually been a separate country because immediately after the Civil War, the same people who are part of the ruling class in the American South, the, the thing that we are trying to change, come back into the government. Mm -hmm. And so the entity that is trying to effect regime change in the American South is actually partially being controlled by representatives sent from the place where we're trying to effect regime change. You know, when we try, when we try to uh, uh, effect regime change in Japan and Germany after World War II, Germans didn't enter the Congress and, ja and Japanese <laughs> to influence our reconstruction policy in those two countries. Mm -hmm. we, we held them as separate entities that we could shape according to our own will. But we couldn't really do that during Reconstruction. Um, and that, that made the, the whole task even more problematic. Yeah. I mean, I'll end with, with one last question. And you know, I was wondering as I was reading this book, if when we change our perspective a little bit and see this as a contestation over regime change, do we should we see Reconstruction as as a bit more successful as we we've had before? Is it is it just this still this the same story of, of failure that, that we've been we've been um, telling for a while? I mean, I mean, how do you see it in terms of the, in the really simplistic way of success or failure? Yeah. Uh, well. I have to say, um, the answer to that question is in the preface mm. to, to the book. Mm -hmm. um, because we have forgotten how great a threat this oligarchy was to the dream of the American founding, which really is the hope of mankind in my view, its success, the success of the American founding on the North American continent was going to either vindicate republicanism for all time, uh, or if it fails, it's going to send the great, you know, the patrons of liberty back to the drawing board to try to come up with new models, new solutions. Um, and that Southern oligarchy, it challenges by challenging the the founders model of of government they are really they're challenging the hope of liberty for uh mankind mm -hmm. and so on balance i have to say given my understanding 
of what was really at stake in the 19th century. I think Reconstruction was, was a success, even though I recognize that the people who paid a price for the failure of Reconstruction um, paid an awful price. Mm. And I mean black Americans, our fellow citizens. But you know, if you even look at it from their point of view, from the point of view of just of, of black Americans, um, you know, the, the outcome, I mean, if the South were, had succeeded, it would have been bad for everybody. Mm-hmm. But because the, the, the Southern oligarchy fails and the North does prevail, even though Reconstruction is long and arduous, at least the hope that black Americans could be uh, recognized fully as fellow citizens, as part of the family of American citizens someday, that hope was preserved. And so I choose to look at Reconstruction as a success um, with, you know, with an awfully big asterisk there. Mm-hmm. Um, more than an asterisk, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't like that turn of phrase, <laughs> but um, but that's... You know, you can see it both ways, but I think, I mean, if if what we're really after is a system of government and way of life that's faithful to the Declaration of Independence, then you got to say that um, that it sure was, it, it preserved the hope, Reconstruction preserved the hope that eventually we could have a nation in which the Declaration of Independence was a living reality, reality on every inch of American soil, um, and and it preserved that hope that someday it would be true. Mm-hmm. Well, Forrest, that's a great place to end right there. Forrest Neighbors, thank you for being on the program today. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah. The book is From Oligarchy to Republicanism, The Great Task of Reconstruction. Go out and get a copy, and thank you for listening.